Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 12th, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This program offers us a means for getting past November 3rd, 2020, January 6th, 2021, as well as this recent Supreme Court session as we collectively clear the debris from the last four days, four weeks, four years, four decades, and last four centuries. Today, we might consider how we make it past the next four years with the undemocratic forces blowing. My guest today is Ion Sancho, former supervisor of elections of Leon County, where Florida's state capital, Tallahassee, is the county seat. Ion cut his teeth on election meltdowns as a third-year law school student in 1986 and then posted quite the 28-year career, which includes the infamous Gore v. Bush 2000 election, where, as a nonpartisan, he was chosen to lead the Florida hand count of ballots in the dispute in Miami-Dade County. Besides being referenced in Greg Palast's The Best Democracy That Money Can Buy, Ion has also appeared on NPR, BBC, New York Times, Washington Post, St. Petersburg Times, and in the documentary 2006, Hacking Democracy, and in the recent HBO special entitled Kill the Chain, The Cyber War on America's Elections. Ion Sancho continues to cast his eagle eye over election integrity and tweets like a man every bit still on the mission. He's a veritable oral history project, knowing where most of the bodies are buried or still moving around. We are very fortunate to have him with us today. He comes to us from Tallahassee. Welcome to Digging Out and welcome back to Radio KUCI, Ion Sancho. Well, thank you very much, Claudia. It's an honor to appear on the program, and we've got quite a bit to talk about. That was the last day of the Supreme Court session was uh, amazing in a very negative sort of way. And we'll, we'll plot the various paths and the consequences because of Ion's career, and I think because of where the news is focusing, I think this is a really great opportunity for the actual machinery, the infrastructure, the election handling. So this is a tremendous resource. We're taping this on July 9th. So I am first, when I recently covered state gerrymandering, state legislative districts with some political scientists, I was drawn to the analogy of voting rights amidst a hurricane, a hurricane minus the FEMA housing or disaster assistance financing. But now, fast forward to where we are in July, perhaps a more apt metaphor is the Champlain condo structure that collapsed in Sunrise, Florida. Well, I think you're right. Most Americans believe, and when I talk to groups, Americans believe that the right to vote is a fundamental right, that they actually have a right to vote. And unfortunately, I have to disabuse them of that thought. We do not, under recent Supreme Court decisions stemming from the Holder case in 2013 to the current cases that finished the session, we do not have a constitutional right to vote. Those decisions clearly outline a process of states' right hegemony in this arena. And in Alito's decision in the Bernovich versus the DNC case, 
clearly, clearly he's placing states' rights superior to our individual right to vote, and that's shocking. Americans no longer have a guaranteed right to vote. States are allowed to suppress their votes under this decision. So I, I wanna just move back from the decision and a longer view of this, when I'm talking about the collapsing of a building and the sort of slow undermining of a structure, perhaps it'd be a good idea first, Ion, to have you talk about the underfunded infrastructure, especially in particular demographic pockets that complicate the one person, one vote proposition. Well, yes. The right to vote in this country has been under attack for decades. And I'd like to take you back to the 2000 election where Bush v. Gore prevented the state of Florida from completing its normal election procedures. Palm Beach County, Miami-Dade were never allowed to recount the ballots, which is a normal process when you want to get an accurate total of what the voters intent was. And that was because they were successful in blocking the vote because they generated the lie that the Democrats were stealing votes. They were manufacturing votes. That's what was ginned up, for example, on that morning on November 22nd. So Ion, speaking of ginning it all up, now you were on the scene, maybe not at the same time, but the GOP operatives that were there to bring that to expedite bringing the the vote recount to a halt were people that are now serving in the supreme court you've nailed it and it's uh and many of these individuals are now in charge of our national policy with regard to voting certainly kavanaugh assisted in that project for example and we all and know chief justice roberts and chief justice roberts whose hostility to voting rights goes all the way back when he was a cabinet aide in 1982, when he authored a paper asking his boss, President Reagan, not to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act, which of course he authored a decision in 2013 in the Shelby case, essentially rendering most of the Voting Rights Act dead. And the task was completed by Justice Alito's opinion in this past week. So when it was contemplated that there certain rights would be uh, succumbing to a, a death by a thousand cuts, but this, this was a gigantic blow to the head with section five was removed and section two of the Voting Rights Act was finished off essentially. So we've learned now folks, the courts are not going to save us. So let's talk about Ion the Branovich decision validating the claims of fraud. I mean, you know, you know how safe and how the infrastructure for polling places is run. So how did you receive the embedded logic that actually it promoted the big lie claiming that there was fraud in the 2020 election? First, you as a former election administrator, how did that, how did you receive that? There is very little in-person voting fraud in the United States of America. I've done a lot of research on this issue and I've given testimony before the United States Senate on this issue. 
and you are about as likely to run into voter fraud, an individual, for example, using a fake ID and going to multiple locations to vote, that is about as common as about getting struck by a bolt of lightning after walking out of your voting precinct on election day. That is how unlikely this is. And so the first fraud that has been committed is the fact that voters are running around cheating. This is false. This was demonstrably false in every major investigation that has been done in the United States of America. And you hear the lies as an election official. I can tell you, for example, when Governor Scott came in with the um, Tea Party movement, the very first thing that election officials in the state of Florida received was a form letter from his supporters saying that there were 188,000 illegal voters, immigrants, populating the voting rolls in Florida, which was false, demonstrably false. But election officials all over the state were bombarded with this as individuals were believing their political leaders and not the individuals who had the data. You can talk to any election official, whether it's in Maricopa County, whether it's in uh, Orange County, California, and you'll, you'll run into the same information. This is not true, but this, this information, this constant bombardment of misinformation which in 2000, of course, predated social media, has been part and parcel of the mantra of the Republican Party and is embedded within their mindset now. And no amount of evidence or proof seems to be able to change that. And based upon this false information, you're seeing not only a consistent pattern of voter suppression by individuals in the Republican Party, who are seeking to suppress the votes of individuals who do not necessarily vote for them. And by the way, I'd like to stop and say, I have no party affiliation. And in years past, in the 80s, for example, when I was involved in elections, I had the same problem from Democrats who didn't want me registering voters because they were afraid that young people were swayed by President Reagan. And so therefore, I shouldn't do voter registration at the universities. So it's not exactly a Republican or Democratic issue. It's just that one party has been completely infected by this. And of course, the recent ex-president has taken it to a whole nother level, calculatedly so. And it is really... I am very, very fearful of our right to vote in the United States, given the supremacy of the state's rights arguments, which six members of the Supreme Court clearly support. And it's as if the Civil War never happened. And the South now has won the war because states' rights, we have entered the era of states' rights without questioning their rationale. And, and I'd like to just say right here that in any kind of a legal context, you normally have to have proof to win. If I'm suing you, we have a problem, or you're my neighbor, you have to br bring some evidence, and I have to bring some evidence, and that evidence is weighed. The Supreme Court has completely thrown that need for evidence out with regard to states' rights. If the state says, we're passing this law preventing the access of minorities to vote by mail or early voting, 
All we have to do is state it. We do not actually have to provide any evidence to prove that and we win. And that, that's, that's mind boggling, Claudia. There is no evidence of voter fraud. They, and they did not bring any evidence of voter fraud. And yet they prevailed over the evidence that has been gathered both at the lower court and the ninth circuit that in fact, this did have these laws in Arizona did have a negative effect on Native Americans, for example. One of the reasons why individuals collect ballots and bring them into the elections office is that individuals scattered across Arizona in tribal sections, many of them don't have transportation. There are no early voting or precincts located all over the reservation because these are thousands of square miles. And, and which so, has also been, a, it's also a case that's being covered too in Montana right now. There's yes. thousands of miles between a voter and a voting. So individuals actually drive to these people's houses and pick up the ballot and drive it with the permission of the voter and bring them into the elections office. That is illegal now. So how are these individuals many of them actually without regular postal service, how are they going to vote? That's irrelevant to Justice Toledo. The state has an interest in preventing fraud. The state says, this is how we're going to stop fraud. Yes, and it is also how the state is gonna stop voting. And that is just, I, I can't begin to describe my feelings about how that makes me feel because I've dedicated my life to allowing people to access the ballot that franchise, which goes all the way back to the most basic document this country ever produced. Before we even had a constitution, we had the Declaration of Independence. And that second paragraph mm -hmm. of that marvelous document, in that second paragraph, it sets out who we believe we are, that all of us have these basic rights for life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And to achieve that, governments are subject to the will of the governed, the will of the consent of the governed. The consent of the governed is manifested through the ballot. That's what that paragraph implies, that we are going to have fair and honest elections. And what we have with these Supreme Court cases running from 2000 now to 2021 is the fact that the will of the governed is irrelevant. The states can suppress the consent of those they control and take autocratic control. In fact, I would go as far as Professor Hassan from, from our is, law school. Yes. Yes. Fabulous. I think he's the number one elections law expert in the nation. And I agree with him that in fact, this decision would allow the states to take away citizens' right to vote completely and to have the legislature substitute their own electors to cast for vote for president, completely denying the role of our votes. It's that bad at this point in our history. And so, because I'm, I'm all about some shorthand for some very complicated ideas because I'm trying to break through with any kind of talking points that can 
capture the attention of all as well as the retention of the idea. But Ion, would it be fair to say that the matter of requiring evidence is replaced by a political pamphlet about states' rights, that one was traded for the other in the Branovich decision? Yes, I would say that's completely accurate. There is no requirement that any state have to prove that there's any voter fraud going on or that this is, in fact, the best way to ensure that any potential fraud would be prevented. Because, in fact, they're not preventing fraud. They're just preventing voters. And I guess, by extension, if you prevent people from voting, you are preventing fraudulent votes because there are no votes at all. So I, there's another line I really, really liked. It was in New York Times editorial, July 2nd. I'm going to quote, and you can respond to it. It'll just, it just jacks up everybody's blood pressure is paying attention. This, the, I'm quoting them. The strategy is so dangerous because it is so dull. It's easy to be outraged by, say, making it a crime to give voters water while they wait in oppressively long lines to cast a ballot, that's in the Georgia law, it's harder to get worked up about the arcane machinery of election administration, end of quote. It is because most Americans do not know how complex, how difficult it is actually to administer an election. I administered a jurisdiction with only about a quarter of a million voters. Actually, I was a medium-sized county. And what we had to do was we had to train over a thousand individuals, complete training on every bit of the election law that they needed to use to make sure that they didn't by mistake disenfranchise a voter. You have to maintain thousands of pieces of equipment. And we actually did a chart determining how many tasks we had to coordinate to do an election in Leon County, we had to coordinate 3,000 separate tasks on a coordinated, planned basis. Wow, that that's to huge. Together. And if one part of that failed, it could have a cascading effect on the rest of the process. Not only do you have to train, you have to locate accessible convenient polling places that citizens could access. And that is a difficult job. Many places don't want to have their facilities tied up, particularly for early voting, for example, which Florida has and many states are developing and implementing. Because that means that for two weeks, basically that facility is going to have the public coming to there and casting their votes. So it's finding locations, finding workers, training the workers and ensuring that you have planned properly for every step of this is a very difficult job. And what I'm seeing is election workers after the 2020 election yes. quitting in disgust and some of them out of fear. Uh, one of my peers in Pasco County, for example, a Republican, had the temerity after the election to say, excuse me, there was no voter fraud in the United States. The evidence shows that this was, in fact, maybe the best large turnout election conducted in the last century. And I mean that the election was that good. And for their reward, people are attacking them. People are telling them you're liars. People are threatening them. 
the supervisor of elections, again, a Republican who had the temerity to say our elections were good. We don't need to reform our laws. He was attacked. He had to get police protection. And this is not a rare event now. Individuals are so threatened if they stand up and say the truth that they have to require police protection. Tammy Jones, who was our past president in Levy County here in the state of Florida, essentially during the 2020 election, sent out applications to her voters so that they wouldn't be threatened by the coronavirus when they voted. And for her effort to try to ensure that her voters could cast a legal ballot, she was attacked. Republicans called her and said, why are you doing this fraudulent, terrible thing? The president says you're committing fraud. And it's mind boggling. And quite frankly, I want to shift. I have to tell the citizens, the problem is not just voter suppression. We're talking about election subversion. And we are, we're going to talk about those two paths, very, very specific things. I just want to let those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Ion Sancho, former supervisor of elections of Leon County in Tallahassee, the county seat there in that county. And we're looking at the effect of recent state legislation and Supreme Court rulings are affecting the operational aspects of running elections. So there's the two paths. And I dare say that both Rick Hessen and you have been our Cassandras about those two paths were going to be the undermining of a person's vote being considered, I'll put it in that general sense. The, so the first is an array of measures that suppress the vote. And then when we're done with that, we will go to the array of measures that subvert the vote. So let's talk about what can happen in the first array of suppression that there's voter purges, there's the voter registration, who's actually eligible. There's the requirement of voter identification, the amount of days where early voting is possible and the location of and the number of polling places. Am I leaving any out or do you want to take up any of those pieces? Well, those are all the critical elements that we're talking about here. And what I would like to say is that voter suppression takes many, many forms. For example, the state of Florida, after Governor DeSantis said that after the November election, Florida was the model for the nation to use. And then he proceeded to develop legislation to wreck that system. We completely changed the way we voted in the 2020 election in Florida because of the coronavirus. We, before you, even that, really, to Florida's credit, the Proposition 4 was approved and the governor intervened to roll back the extent to which a large demographic was going to be eligible to vote. So be, let's talk about that a little bit, the certainly, effect of the, the turnout before we get to the coronavirus. In the state of Florida, we are one of a very few sets of states, very few now, and mostly border and Confederate states of past history, who, if you're convicted of a felony, can never vote, can never vote. You have to have your civil rights restored. And that used to be a process where you could go before the cabinet, present evidence that you've learned your lesson, you've lived a productive life, and sometimes you'd get your rights stored, but many times you wouldn't. But under Republican governor we had in 2008, Charlie Crist, he created a process to essentially 
increase the restoration of civil rights for these citizens, a majority of which are poor, a sizable minority are African-American. And by the way, if your listeners have not seen the Netflix documentary, The 13th, they should, because it describes how felon convictions were used essentially to reinstate slavery over African-Americans in South after the Civil War up until the Voting Rights Act. It's an excellent, excellent documentary. I wholeheartedly recommend everyone should see the 13th. And it's on Netflix, so it's, it's widely available. But what the citizens in this state overwhelmingly voted was to restore the rights of those citizens to vote after they have completed their sentence. It was like almost 69% right. voted for 70%. it. I mean, that's a phenomenal it expression is. of voter will. Okay. And that would have affected 2 million more voters. We would have had 2 million more voters in the state of Florida. But the governor and the Florida legislature decided that completing the sentence meant that you had to pay all of these ancillary court costs, which are basically civil fines, not criminal fines. For example, if you are a felon in the state of Florida, they charge you per day on how much food you get. They charge you for your own medical care. And then you owe a bill at the end of your sentence after you've completely paid your debt to society, you haven't paid this new financial burden that the Florida legislature has imposed upon you. And the legislature at the direction of Governor DeSantis said, oh, wait a minute, you haven't completed your sentence because you haven't paid these fines. And, but Ion, and- when I hear about this, excuse I just to this point, the irony is because of what you mentioned fleetingly in the 13th documentary is likely there would be no restitution if those fees held that they would have been paid off if the true value of their labor while they were incarcerated was value. Right. All of these in, in its, its legion, if anybody remembers the I was a member of a chain gang, Paul Muni uh, did some fabulous movies. In the 1930s, there was an expose. The Warner movies were showing how essentially Southern and border states were using felons essentially as private slaves. Corporations and companies could essentially use you as a slave and you had to work for them. And that's our history. That's our history in in this country. And we've had a number of citizens were revolts. And so there were many reforms in the 30s and 40s relative to the chain gangs. And we have prison industries today, which are a little better than slavery. You get to work in a factory and you don't keep any of the money that you manufacture and companies get to profit off of that. But that's a whole nother story. But the the issue is we have used every sort of available tool to ensure that people who are not disfavored, particularly African-Americans, would be kept off the rolls. I like to tell people there were two American Civil Wars. There was a fighting American Civil War from 1861 to 1865. And that was a declared war that the North won. And there was an undeclared civil war from 1870 to 1965, which was the Jim Crow era, 
which the South won, where they essentially suppressed and kept in virtual chattel the sharecroppers and the Southern agricultural lands all across the South. And this did not end until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. In 1965 was the first time that African-Americans could actually register and vote all across the South. And during that period of time of this suppression, that led to great migrations. If you study our history, this is why large populations of African-Americans moved to the West, to California, moved up into the Midwest, into Illinois and Chicago, and moved up into Harlem and caused the Harlem Renaissance. These individuals were fleeing not just voter suppression, but white American apartheid, which in fact, no whites were convicted of killing blacks. You could look the wrong way at a woman and you could be murdered and there was no penalty you would pay. That's our history. And you have to understand our history to realize what a great change the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was. In fact, here in Tallahassee, some students were part of the voting rights movement that went and registered voters. We had students, we had people from Tallahassee who were murdered simply going to Mississippi and Alabama to register people to vote. They would kill you if you tried to register blacks. In We have a whole series of massacres across the state of Florida, which Rosewood is well known in the Florida legislature apologized for Rosewood. But there's a small town right outside of Orlando that in 1922, an African-American by the name of Perry went to vote and he was turned away. And he tried to go and vote again and he was turned away. And they had a revolution on election day. They hunted down all the African-Americans and they chased them out of this entire town. And KKK traveled from Orlando to this town. This is our history, which of course we don't teach. And under these laws that Florida and a number of states are passing, you can't teach that history if it makes a person feel uncomfortable or racist. Excuse me, we were racist. Institutional racism is why these individuals, public officials, Sheriff Willis McCall could drive an individual in his car out to a field and shoot them and kill them and suffer no penalty. And that's, that's another famous case, Sheriff Willis McCall from Lake County. And again, I'm a student of history. I will tell you that if I had not gotten into elections, which I went into because of an election that I ran for and the supervisor of elections negligently programmed the voting machines and 5,000 Leon Countyans were turned away from the polls on election day, completely changing the course of my own history because I decided I'm gonna go into elections and fix this problem. And fix it I did, but in the course of fixing it, I've discovered this whole legacy of voter suppression mixed with racism. And the two go hand in hand and always have gone hand in hand in our history. The, you cannot separate racism from this problem. Precisely. So I, I want to 
unpackage these aspects of suppression. If there's any particular aspect you want to talk about, there are voter purges occurring now in states across the country, right there in Florida. So you as a former administrator, you have a method about what really needs to be purged versus there's some, would you verify there's a very indiscriminate or perhaps a very strategic kind of purging going on to have a partisan advantage? Yes, yes. Ohio is actually one of the leaders in this effort. Under the Help America Vote Act and the National Voter Registration Act, these were two pieces of legislation, one passed in 1992 and the other passed in 2003. These pieces of legislation were supposed to make voting more accessible, but elements in them essentially, no matter if you have a good law, if you have an individual with a bad intention, your good law will not stand for much. In, for example, the National Voter Registration Act says that election officials have to essentially go through their roles and make sure that people who have moved are removed from the roles. People who are dead are removed from the roles. In elections, we call that file maintenance. It's a very nondescript name. Dull, but critical, yes. It is. And so we actually partner with third-party vendors who contract with the post office and they get all the national change of address forms and they actually can help us and this is a normal process. But you can go beyond that and say, for example, well, if you haven't voted in two general elections and you haven't responded to a mail out that the supervisor of elections send to you, we can remove you from the rolls. Well, well excuse me. Not everybody reads every piece of mail that's sent to their house. And in fact, if your kids get the mail before you do and the mail gets misplaced, you can still be there and you can be removed from the rolls and you haven't done anything wrong. That's something that the state of Ohio pioneered and that was upheld by this conservative Supreme Court in an earlier court decision. But so election officials have at their disposal useful tools which they apply, but that isn't enough to individuals who want to see large portions of the electorate removed from the voting rolls. And so, for example, in Florida in 2010, going back to Governor Scott, he, in fact, instituted a purge. We were informed the election officials of the state of Florida were in a statewide conference, and we were informed that there was going to be a purge, and the purge was going to take place in June. There were state primary elections with federal candidates in August. There is a federal law in the National Voter Registration Act that says systematic purges cannot be done within 90 days of any election in which there are congressional or federal candidates. Why? Because that doesn't provide enough time to correct for the errors that may be, in fact, our databases. And this is something that citizens need to know. The databases are not perfect. So, in fact, Yes, a few people who should be removed may remain. But if you go and pull everybody that you think potentially may not be there, you can make huge mistakes. Just as in the 2000 election in Florida, Catherine Harris's Secretary of State's office sent out felons lists to every county in the state of Florida. 
and told the state of Florida that we have identified these individuals as potential felons and they should be removed from the rolls unless they can present evidence that they're legal voters. That happened in March of 2000 before the November election. I myself received such a list of yes. 694 names. And I did not remove these individuals. Instead, I did my due diligence and checked against all of the available databases to determine whether or not you are a felon. Contacting the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the Department of Corrections, we found only 36 individuals were actual felons. The list was more than 90% inaccurate. And all across the state of Florida, other election officials, because we're all independent, we only meet twice a year, many thousands, more than 10,000 African-Americans were illegally removed from the rolls before the November election which, in 2000. Which is the, no so report. lopsided. We were looking at that. That was decided the electoral votes, college votes for the 2000 election, presidential election was decided with the 520 some. 537. 537 that margin. In my so all of these numbers were really met. So the through line here is how lopsided the consideration of disenfranchising somebody from what's considered fraud. It's a completely lopsided two number array. It, it is. And then, and then when you, the, the people were outraged in Congress and they passed the Help America Vote Act, which because of this, see, right. California has a court that citizens actually can go to and appeal an administrative decision. Judges actually hold court on election day. And if you are denied the right to vote and you think you are a legal voter, you can go into court in California and get reinstated in vote. That didn't exist in Florida. So that meant that all of these individuals that were falsely identified as felons, and you only had to have 70% of your name match a felon's name. And I know this because we sent such a letter to an individual by the name of Rick Johnston. There was a felon by the name of Rick Johnston. Rick Johnston was notified that he was a felon. I happened to know Rick Johnston. He called me up very aggravated. He was a prominent attorney in Tallahassee. This is in 2000? This is in 2000. And so this was a, a broadcast kind of thing. You didn't have to have an exact match to be identified as the felon. You only had to match 70% of the felon's name to be identified as a felon, which is insane. You know, Johnston, Johnson, uh, Smith. A middle initial. Holy which, cow. Yeah. You're right. It, it was horrible. They identified the supervisor of elections from Madison County as a felon. She was on the list. Oh, no. She was embarrassed. But that's how awful the list was that we were supposed to use to remove voters from the rolls. At what request? The Republican Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, who was what? The Florida State Director of the Bush campaign in Florida. And that's how politics bleeds over into elections, which is wrong. Elections officials like myself, in many cases, are nonpartisan. And I will tell you that being having almost a three-decade professional career, I've watched as election officials across the country have received additional training 
This was critical. Back in the 50s and 60s, there was no national training for election officials. You were on your own. But there were centers like the Election Center in Houston, IACRIOT, which is another national organization. They started providing training for election officials. And the training from election officials from 2000 to 2020 has increased dramatically. And I'm proud of these individuals for getting the training. In 1996, I was the first Florida election official ever to receive national certification. Today, 75% of all Florida's election supervisor of elections are nationally certified. And this trend has occurred all across the country. Election officials like Dean Logan, like others, getting the kind of training to actually understand the complexities of the job and to do a better job. And our reward after the 2020 election is to be kicked in the teeth and having our jobs removed. And that's one of the things that I want to get to before yes, we run yes, out yes, of time. Yes, yes, because that's the escalators going up that there were more and more, there's like this professionalization trend yes, with, yes. with engineering, with managing the election infrastructure. But we've got now the down, the escalator. It's going down with the, yeah, the people, threats people. on these professionals. So what is the status quo ion of those that are remaining in those offices with the huge disincentives to remain in office. Well, with the disinformation and the fact that, I'm sorry, but I have read some of these lawsuits, for example, that came out of Texas and, they, and the one they wanted Louisiana to find. Implicit in these is that there's been a huge conspiracy that election officials all over the country have been cheating the Republican voters. That's what the Republican voters are being told. Election officials have been cheating. And that and this is not true, but this has led, for example, let's go, let's use Georgia. Well, I want to say our own Neil Kelly was quoted in the New York Times within this last week, I think. And he was saying that these challenges to the legitimacy or the integrity of his elections, he says it's a phenomenal waste of his time. It's not yielding anything to your point you're making. Right. It's it's uh you're attacking individuals who have dedicated their lives, who spend 60 to 70 hour weeks. For example, after July 4th in Leon County, no election worker in our office was allowed to take a day off. No vacations, nothing. From July through November, you are working, not five days a week, whatever it takes. Right. The IT people work seven days a week. They work overnight. You work until the job is done because every one of your jobs are time sequential and integrated with another task. And there's a time certain. For example, it all has to come together on November 3rd for the precincts. And for early voting, a month earlier, everything has to be done. And before that, you need voter education. That's we right. I was going to hope you can bring booklets. that up. Yeah. California has to prepare booklets for all the citizens relative to every one of these. This is an immense task, and citizens don't realize this. You just don't put up a voting machine and print a ballot and say, okay, vote. That's <laughs> not how it works. I used to tell people that for every presidential election that I conducted in my life, I've probably lost a year of my life. Mm. You know, I will be one year not as old as I could have been because the stress is intense. It is nonstop. And that was even before the misinformation. 
Election officials across this country are dedicated to make sure that voters can vote, they want to follow the law, and they want every legal vote to count. That's what their commitment is. And I've lived through the professionalization of the entire election management process in the United States from when there wasn't until now there is. And what we're seeing is Republican legislatures taking away the authority and discretion of election officials to do their job properly. Secretary of State Raffenberger, a Republican in, in Georgia. Georgia, who refused to, quote, find, unquote, 11,870 more votes for ex-President Trump because they weren't there, they conducted two full hand counts, a human being looking at every ballot twice and one machine rescan recount. And the numbers are right. What was his reward? He was removed in this Georgia bill that just passed his voting status and chairman status for the state elections board of Georgia was taken away. And they passed laws that would allow a partisan legislature to appoint people that could take over election officials' jobs and put in partisans so they would get the kind of figures that President Trump wanted. That's what is I'm calling election subversion. Right. That's the array we want to talk this about. This election subversion. They so are completely caught up in the lies that this gentleman told that they are stripping away the basic protections of all of us, which is that elections should be nonpartisan, professionally managed, something that we could believe in. They're destroying that. That's what they're about. They want to win, and winning means destruction of nonpartisan professional elections management in the United States of America. And that's something that we cannot tolerate at all. Let the election officials do their jobs. Yes, you can audit the elections, and there are real audits that you can do. They did three such real audits in Georgia, confirming the vote. Audits are a regular course of many elections, and they can be improved. I will tell you that. Okay. But the fact of the matter is, what is going on in Maricopa County, Arizona, is not an audit. It's a fraud. It is not anywhere all connected to an audit. An audit actually is a concise, scientific, observable process where teams of individuals confirm the counts of other teams because humans make mistakes. And so if you're counting pieces of paper, you simply don't take the opinion of one person or one team. We would have two different teams, one checking the work of the other. And then there's another team, the canvassing board, which confirms the validity of the first two teams. That's how it normally works in many jurisdictions but most Americans are completely unaware of the kind of energy that we put into confirming the validity of an election and have now succumbed to the idea that election officials are in some kind of, I guess, conspiracy kind of to steal people. Right. A cabal. That's a good word for it. And it's not true. And it's so saddening and maddening because I know these individuals. I worked with them for decades. 
They are the most patriotic Americans in the United States. I will tell you that. Pa so, election officials bleed. They bleed patriotism. You cannot find individuals who are more patriotic than our election officials in this nation. And what we are doing to them is a sin. For those of you who just joined us, here on Digging Out, my guest is Ion Sancho. He's the former supervisor of elections of Leon County and Florida's state capital, Tallahassee. And we're looking first at the array of suppression measures, now the array of subversion measures in our casting about a ballot. So if you could tell us, where does the auditing begin? So there are ballots that are cast. So how early does the audit track that ballot cast because of this certification can be perhaps subverted pretty early on with how that ballot is handled. Well, yes, and, and all states have different certification deadlines. For example, I believe California has a certification deadline of 28 days. That's probably the longest of all the states, but you have a very large population. Florida is one of the shortest. We have two weeks to certify the election. And because of that, the state of Florida has developed rules and regulation to allow us to do it in that time frame. We're allowed to process our vote by mail ballots 22 days now before the election. That means as individuals send in the vote by mail ballots to our office, we verify the signatures. Yep, Joe Smith here, that signature on the outside of that ballot envelope, that's the same signature that they registered to vote 14 years ago. Every vote by mail ballot in Florida, for example, the signature of that voter is compared to their voter registration application to confirm it's the same person. And even beyond that, vote by mail ballots are individually sent to individuals. I've been shocked by hearing how, for example, the president even said that, the ex-president, well, people will steal vote by mail ballots out of mailboxes and incorrectly fill them out and send them back in. Those are all void. Because, in fact, there are barcodes, which, of course, people can't read, but we can, which says the name of that voter that we sent it to originally. So if we send a ballot to Joe Smith and we get a ballot back from Donna Williams, void, void. It's not even going to be opened. It's going to be trashed right off the bat, because that is not the person who legally requested that. So right off the bat, what the president is talking about is a falsehood, but he doesn't really care. He was generating this belief to try to destroy the validity of vote by mail ballots. Why? Because the DNC and the Florida Democratic Party and almost every Democratic Party in the country decided we don't want to threaten our voters with death by exposure to the coronavirus. So instead of pushing early voting, which we had always pushed in our county, we pushed vote by mail because we don't want you to have to be exposed to other people during this contagion. And the president knew that. And we saw the early debacles where jurisdictions like Wisconsin, who are not used to voting by mail, less than 10% of the population of Wisconsin usually voted by mail. They went and voted in person. Yes. But in the primary, that number flipped to 80%. Well, they couldn't count all these ballots in a timely fashion in Wisconsin. And so what we saw was a whole host of states being besieged by election officials saying, 
change the laws to make our laws more like Florida so we can count all of these ballots. And the reason that Florida did this was because Florida went to no excuse voting in 2002. And the majority of the citizens that used that were Republicans. And so voting by mail was favored by the Florida legislature because since 1998 until this present day, the Florida legislature and the governorship of the state of Florida has been totally controlled by the Republican Party. And since Republican voters were using vote by mail, they made it easy and convenient. That's why vote by mail was attacked by Governor DeSantis this year, because 1.5 million more Democratic voters voted by vote by mail drop boxes than Republicans. So vote by mail is attacked now and discredited. In fact, if you want to ask for a vote by mail ballot in Florida, you'll have to remember which form of voter identification you use oh my to register to vote. Oh. If you, you have to provide under our law, either your Florida driver's license, your Florida ID, or your last four digits of your social security, that's recorded when you're registered to vote. When you vote by mail, and could not, used to just call up and say like a vote by mail ballot and give them your name, address and your birth date and you'd get one. Now you have to remember and you have to match what the ID was that you used. If you used your Florida driver's license, you have to produce that to get a vote by mail ballot. If you used a Florida ID number, you have to produce that. If you used your last four digits of your social security number, you have to produce. And if you can't remember which one you used and send the wrong one, you won't get a vote by mail ballot anymore. That's because one only reason, because one party used it successfully. And so they're now attacked. And this of course is, is really dumb because up until the contagion, the majority of Republicans voted by mail. So they're, they're going to impact their own party. And I think this is not going to be very effective because the larger number of population will just go back to voting early in the state of Florida during that 15 day period, like they used to. So this is just like whack-a-mole. That's all it is. Oh, popped up over there, smack them. That's the kind of things that the states have been doing around the country. And now on top of that, their election officials are threatened in the state of Florida with $25,000 civil fines if you don't maintain your drop boxes the way that we tell you. Excuse me? There's no evidence that they weren't. And that's the whole frustrating thing. Without any evidence at all, laws are being changed to make the way that you voted last time more difficult. That's the plain and simple of it. And because election officials didn't give the politicians, what they wanted, they're being threatened, their roles are being diminished, and this is simply not something that we can tolerate anymore.